not reviewing electrical material in my body. It's uh, a very, uh, it, it's been a very challenging weekend. Not an easy. Um, thank you. I, I would like to, first of all, I'd also like to thank everybody because it's been very uh, exciting and challenging. And, uh, you know, I don't mind when my thoughts are challenged. It makes me think more clearly about what I think. And, you know, certainly anybody's free to disagree with me. I certainly don't claim that I'm infallible. And, uh, you know, certainly if somebody feels what I'm saying is, doesn't apply to them or they just disagree with them in principle, that's certainly okay. Uh, I want to address some of the concerns. You know, many people brought up different issues with some of the things I said. Again, it could be maybe I wasn't clear about certain things. could be other things people disagree with. So let me just try to clarify some of the issues that came up, and I think it directly ties into what we're going to be speaking about today. I guess one issue that many people find either uh, difficult to accept about what I say is that it seems that I'm advocating like a total lack of discipline and structure I guess maybe you call it anarchy. Uh, you know, and, and I guess especially with things that we feel that every child should do, you know, whether it's going to shul or waking up at a uh, normal hour, it just, many people find very difficult to accept that, you know, just doing nothing is a way to deal with it. And it's certainly a legitimate concern, I suppose, any normal parent, uh, when you see your child sleeping till, you know, 12 noon, it, 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 it is understandable that it would be very difficult to feel that that's okay. And actually, I'm not saying it's okay. And there's certainly, the question is what to do about it. Now, one thing, let's say, certainly, I think something that came up yesterday, I don't remember who said directly to me, or it was brought up in a different forum, you know, let's say if somebody's child is beating up a younger sibling, or even insulting them. And I think I mentioned yesterday when I was speaking that, you know, that I actually thought it was not good that if a, a, one child insults another child that the parents should do nothing. You know, where, where somebody else is being hurt, I think that certainly that's a place to draw the line because you can't be kind to one person on somebody else's expense. So even if it made sense for whatever reason not to tell that particular child, I think the fact that somebody else's rights are being violated certainly overweighs that and, and, and you definitely have to be much more firm about it. The, only, the, the thing is that if you usually more accepting, you don't have to do that much to stop the child. You know, the, if a, it's like when you have a teacher. If you have a teacher who's usually very kind and accepting, and if, if somebody oversteps the bounds, usually that teacher only has to give the kid a look uh, or just call their name, and that usually is enough to stop it because it, since the teacher is usually very accepting, so if they, make an object, if they object to something, it's usually much easier for the child to say, oh, okay, okay this is too much. Of course, if a, if, a, if a teacher is very punitive, then, you know, then in order to get the child's attention, she'd have to pull out a shotgun and shoot him, you know, because they, they're so used to being criticized or, 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 or being reprimanded. So the same thing here, you know, certain things that are violations of other children's rights, I think is certainly a place where a child should realize that that's not acceptable. I remember uh, just... Again, like just to reiterate the point that if there are too many things that are unacceptable, the unacceptableness loses its effectiveness. Uh, when I first graduated from school, I worked for a few years in a school for very, very disturbed children in Brooklyn. And um, there was a principal. I was the chief psychologist and there was a large staff. And these are kids who like, couldn't be contained in any other uh, environment. 
and since it was a uh, state-funded school, it was like uh, we had all kinds of religions and races in the school. And our biggest, biggest fear is that we're going to have a race riot. You know, that was really, you know, because that, that would really be terrible. So we had very few rules. Kids got away with a lot. We really tried to be a very positive place, a very loving place, and we had a lot of great teachers, and, and there was a lot of good work that was done there. But the kids knew there was only one thing that was forbidden absolutely. Making a racial or, or, or religious uh, comment, they knew. And it's amazing, in the, in the two years that I was there, I think we had maybe one or two minor incidents. The, one rule they were able to handle. You know, out of three probably would have been too much. But one, that was the one thing they knew, that was nothing, that's not negotiable. And since it was, it was so limited, they were able to accept it more. Now, again, and if a child is hitting, has a chronic problem of hitting a sibling, then even though it's unacceptable, it probably behooves us to try to understand what's going on. You know, like, why is this happening? Could be there are things that we can do environmentally to make it less likely to happen, rather than just saying no. So if it's something that happens once or twice, by being firm about it, the child realizes this is something that is absolutely not acceptable. If it's happening chronically, we have to try, as we'll discuss in a few moments, how to, you know, what the problem is. Now, if a child has a, be, a, a misbehavior that's not age-appropriate or not, not place-appropriate, in other words, sometimes a child is doing something that we feel is terrible. But if you ask around, you find out that most kids his age are doing the same thing. Right? We may not be happy about it, but it puts it in a different coloring. That means, the, you know, if, if there's a teacher, if, 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 a, if you get a note from your student, from your school, your child's school, that your child is, like, causing trouble in class. Right? Of course, we're not happy about such a thing. But let's say we discover, by asking other parents, that none of the kids in the class can stand this teacher that anybody in this class is getting in trouble, that should shine a different light on the problem. Because now, although we would like our kid to behave all the time, it's just, it just may not be a reasonable expectation. If it's that type of teacher that none of the kids can stand, we have to look at it in a different way. We can't react in the same way. If it, it seems he's the only one causing trouble, you shouldn't ignore it. Because it's a problem. You know, especially if it happens with a few teachers. So, you know, your child has a behavior problem. So the question is what to do. So I want, I want to make it clear, maybe I didn't make it clear enough yesterday, that I, I'm not saying that we just let everything go and not worry about it. It's just that in order to do something, you have to do something that's reasonable, that makes sense, that is likely to make the situation better. Sometimes it's very hard to find something. Sometimes the situation is difficult, and it's hard to find an idea that might be helpful. I don't think doing nothing is such a terrible thing if doing something is going to make the situation worse. It is extremely frustrating for a parent to not be able to do anything. You know, sometimes, God forbid, somebody has a medical problem or a relative has a medical problem. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, there's nothing we can do. Of course, the best thing to do in such a situation, which you should do anyways, is daven, like the, the rabbi mentioned, you know, that's certainly something in all circumstances we can do. But as far as what we can do naturally, if the doctor says nothing to do, it's the most incredible, frustrating thing in the world, but going to do something stupid is, 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 is not a solution to the problem or something that's not likely to help. So, th th this idea, uh, you know, of, of what I advocate sometimes not to do something in a certain situation is only because of what I can tell, I, I know for sure that doing X is going to make the situation worse. Sometimes I can come up with solution Y that probably would make it better, but sometimes I can't. But to make it worse is not, is not, is not a good idea in any case. There are sometimes natural consequences 
if, if a child, let's say, for instance, is, wake, is, is let's say, working, has a job, he drops out of school, he has a job, and he's always waking up late, right? I will tell the child, I'll say, listen, I really, I understand it's very hard for you to get up in the morning. I know you're not doing it because you're lazy. I know you're not doing it because you don't care. I know you really very much want to keep this job and how much it would hurt you if you lost it. Unfortunately, the reality is I think it's highly unlikely your boss is going to keep you on the payroll if you never show up in the morning. So, you know, is there anything I can do to help you? Is there anything you think, think you can do? Let's maybe try to think of something. If it's really important for you to keep the job, maybe we can find some way to help you. Very often we can. Sometimes you have to lose four jobs before it finally, you know, he may take the problem more seriously or, or delve deeper into what the problem is or willing to do something that may increase his motivation. So, it's really, I, I didn't develop this approach with a philosophy. I didn't come into this with a philosophy, you know, you got to let kids do whatever they want. That's not where this comes from. It's just from practical, I found that when parents force children to do things that they really don't want to do, especially things that are not obvious to them why they should do it. See, kids naturally understand why it's important to go to school. Now, sometimes they give up after a while don't go, but they understand it. It's something that, that uh, even a young child could comprehend why it's important to go to school. Why to go to school is harder for a person to understand. Even adults sometimes find it more difficult than, than why they have to go to jobs. Right? I think many adults, even who normally go to shul, will probably, for many adults, were more likely to miss going to shul than going to work. Because one is more obvious, the repercussions, the other one is less obvious. That's how we are. That's human nature. So for a child, when, when he's forced to do something that he really doesn't want to do, it creates such negativity. I've never seen it work well. If other people have other experiences, you know, okay, you know, maybe they've seen it differently. I've never seen a long-term benefit. It could be a short-term benefit if you call just getting him there as, as a benefit. But I've never seen what ends up happening. The child just hates him more and more. I've spoken to many, you know, older teenagers or young adults, you know, who never go to shul, can't even walk anywhere near a shul because they, they were forced to go and they develop such negative feelings. Even though now, when they're older, could be on their own, they would have wanted to go, no longer want. There's one fellow, I worked with a young man that uh, actually came from a very wealthy family and it drove him, he, he, he developed such a negativity to learning, to davening, and to everything that was associated with his childhood because there was a tremendous amount of pressure to conform and do. His father was, you know, was very obsessed with what people are going to be thinking. There was a lot of pressure based on public perception. And it turned him off so much, he had a huge collection of swarm. His father was very wealthy. Whenever he wanted to buy swarm, his father would give him money. He could not look at any safer. He gave some some yeshiva or shul got an incredible library for nothing. He donated it to some school, just gave away every safer. He didn't want to look at any safer, had anything to do with growing up. He gave away his tillin. He gave it to some kid, some poor kid, his tillin, he bought a new pair. He couldn't wear the tillin he grew up with. He couldn't look at a shas vilna. He couldn't look at any shas that had the same surah sadat that looked like the vilna shas. He had to get the steinzels shas that has a different layout. He couldn't, because he, he got sick every time he would look. And he loved to learn. But he couldn't learn in, in a regular gemara because it had such negative association. He, had, he, he his chumash he couldn't use he couldn't use a mikrayos kudayos he had to use a, the, the cook chumash as a different page, lay, layout of the page anything that was associated with what he grew up with was just we get him sick so that the problem is not, it's, it's not a philosophy it's not that I think it's a good thing for a kid to sit in bed and not go to not go to shul it's just the question is what can we realistically expect to be the outcome if we force him. Right now, if you don't force him, it's possible he'll either get older, get more mature, or straighten out whatever is bothering him in his life. And it could be that, that at some point he'll... It happens, you see, people get older, they get more mature, and things that 
they didn't want to do when they were younger, they feel more comfortable doing when they're older. But if you ruin the whole atmosphere and the whole attitude and create negative associations, it, most often, I think in the experience of, of, of many people, is that it creates a negativity and only ends up being worse. And I, all the Gedalim agree with this. I don't think there's one Gadol who exists today that doesn't agree that, that, that forcing is not the way. Any, any Gadol has anything to do with this. You speak to Ramat Tzashel Salman, to Roshleim Evolba, you speak to any Gadol, even the last generation, it's written in the Svar. The, the, there's a famous story, I don't know if I mentioned here, with, there was a Chazaynish that was printed in the Masayish, I think there was once printed in the Jewish Observer, was translated, a true story. It was quite amazing, because it must have happened in the 50s, that there was a, a fellow who, uh, he, he, he became, this young man, he became a Mechal Shabbos. And, and uh, he wanted his father to buy him a car, which was amazing. I don't know who had a car in the 50s. It must have happened in Israel, I don't know. But, and, he, and his father agreed on only one condition. They shouldn't drive the car on Shabbos. He shouldn't drive that car that he's giving to him on Shabbos. Does that sound pretty reasonable? Imagine you buy a kid a car, and that's a one condition, and one day a week not to drive it. It sounds pretty good. And the kid refused. And, and it caused further friction in the relationship. And it says that the Chazanish told the father, it's worth it for you to buy the car without any condition. Okay? So this is just not my thinking. I think that all the good... He said, because this way, it could be you'll develop a relationship with him, and, you know, and eventually you're able to influence him. If you just try to fight with him, it's just going to cause him a negative reaction. I don't think that Chazinish said that because he didn't appreciate Shmir Shabbos sufficiently. I think it's just because he understood that this just doesn't work this way. Now, very often, the beginning of negativity starts on minor things. You know, in the beginning, the child's not so rebellious. Just whatever, acting like children act. And sometimes we make negative comments that we don't even register in our mind that it's negative. Uh, somebody told me the other day a comment they used to make, you know, to their child, you know, where the child got up uh, for minion, you know, exactly on time. Instead of getting up early enough to be there on time, he says, well, okay, do you think you're going to be on time, you know, if you get up now? You know, instead of appreciating the kid gets out of bed, and, and you know, many adults also have a hard time getting there, you know, before bruches. It's not so easy. You rush in the last minute, you come a few minutes late, it's pretty common. It's unfortunate we can't be perfect, but that's... So when you make those type of negative comments... Or with something even so minor, it creates a negativity for no good reason. And eventually, it becomes more and more negative, and, and, and the child, you know, will start coming later and later. Now, somebody mentioned yesterday, a few people mentioned about consequences. Because I know among many therapists, they very much push this idea of consequences. I must say that, I, I, from my experience, it, it doesn't work so well. It works well enough to entice people to continue using it until things blow up, or, but it creates, again, so much negativity. I, I think I mentioned other... ...to change things. In her school, she described her school is run totally on consequences. The principal is a very strict person, and the whole school works on demerits. It's a whole system, you know, it would make... Uh, it would make any large uh, you know, multinational c company proud. They have a whole demerit system. There's consequences for everything. And she'd spend most of the day giving demerits. Oh, you're talking? Demerits. This, demerits, demerits. It was a whole, and there were files, and there was a school. It was a whole, it was a whole lot of like demerits. It worked a little bit. Kids were scared. Of course, you try to talk when the teacher's back was turned so they wouldn't get caught. And the kids were frustrated, and the kids were angry, and the whole environment in the school and in her class was very negative. And she told me she never enjoyed teaching. Finally, one day when she realized, when she accepted some of the things we discussed, she walked into the office, she pulled out all the books and threw them all in the garbage. And the principal says, 
What are you doing? She goes, this method stinks. I'm just not doing it anymore. She was very friendly with the principal. I guess she thought she could get away with it. And, uh, you know, that's it. She just threw it out. Now she says her class, she said she used to be jealous of teachers who, could, who had absolute control of their class. She was always trying to be like them. She was like, I was wondering what the trick was. And then she realized, it's crazy. There is more talking in her class than there was before. It's not as perfect, but she says the kids are 100 times happier. They learn more. The relationship with them changed unbelievably dramatically. They, they feel connected to it. And she said for the first time in her life, she enjoys teaching. She's been teaching for 25 years. Right? The atmosphere is better, so the kids are perfectly quiet. And if a kid's disturbing, she'll walk over quietly, not embarrass the kid in public, ask him if there's something wrong. You know, if the kid's upset about something, she'll say, you know, okay, you know, maybe go out for a half hour, take a walk, come back when you feel a little bit, you know. And once in a while, she'll get a little stricter. She'll say, look, I can't run the classes. You know, if you're talking, you can't. But it doesn't do it too often. And says, usually the kids respond in a more positive way. If, if she sees a kid is really, you know, something is really wrong, she'll, she'll sit and talk to the kid an hour and try to find out, like, what's the problem? You know, why do you find it so difficult to sit in class? You know, something bothering you? Is it a problem at home? Is it a problem with your friends? And she really got it involved. I think it's just a much more effective method. So really, and, and I think I mentioned this yesterday also, that um, if anybody thinks back to the, the best teacher they ever had, if you think back the best Rebbe or the best teacher you ever had, I think you'll find that they weren't very strict, they didn't hardly ever punish, they hardly ever raised their voice. So you'll ask, how do they keep discipline in the class? The people are sometimes teacher ask me, well, I mean, according to you, I used to talk discipline in class. It would be chaos. I always tell them, think back to the best teacher you ever had in your school when you went to school. They think back, okay, yeah, that teacher, was she very strict? Did she punish people? No, that hardly ever happened. Was the class out of control? Was it chaotic? Was it anarchy? No, actually not. How did she do it? Because there are other pathways to, to, to better pathways to reach the same goal. There are other pathways to create influence other than fear. There's an incredible, there was an incredible, incredible mechanech in, 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 uh, in, in Brooklyn, in one of the yeshivas there, of Chaim Siegel's of Chaim Levracha, that he, 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 it was something that he was pretty strict, and no, people didn't fool around by him, but he, he highly ever raised his voice. He was, he, he accepted the bachem, he was such an accepting, loving person, that was incredible. In fact, there was a fellow once that called him, because he had, uh, even though he was a high school rabbi, he was a manal of the high school, he still continued to maintain relationships with the Bacham after they went to, you know, to the post-high school, they went to Israel. They always felt very connected to him. Somebody once called, a father once called him, a, a father of a girl, asked him about a shidduch. He was, he was looking for a shidduch for his daughter. So three, some, some, was interested in three boys who learned by him one. He said, tell me about these boys. And he got all insulted. He says, you think I'm going to tell you something negative about my Talmudim? Like he got offended that, that, this boy, that the person, his father asking him, had a thought that he was going to speak negatively about one of his Talmudim. So the guy furiously backtracked and said, no, Hashashon, I didn't think that. I thought, different people have different minds, they have different qualities. I only interested about the good things, but I want to know which of the qualities that are more, you know, they're more suitable for my daughter. Oh, okay, so then he calmed down. He said, okay, you know, I'll tell you each one their, their, their particular qualities. Right? So this is like a Rebbe that you could really learn from. And he hardly, he wasn't much of a disciplinarian, even though the place ran, there was a tight ship. There was, he did it through, his, they liked him, they wanted to emulate him, they wanted to please him in a healthy way, and, and, and they achieved the same results in, in, a, in a much healthier way. So therefore, I would say the best way of influence is both by setting an example and, and having a loving, a loving, accepting relationship. I remember many years ago, 
somebody asked me uh, 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 what, what would be a, a uh, uh, how to deal with, with a son who has a temper. So I asked this man, I said to him, uh, you know, do you have a temper? He says, yeah. I said, there's the answer. Right? And people don't think of it. Like, he, he was looking at it as, 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 as a problem that was independent of him. You know, he has a temper. as has to do with his son. You know, so we have to set it best that we're only human. And we obviously, we can't set a perfect example. But then don't be nervous or don't think there's something horribly wrong if the child, you know, has similar, uh, similar, similar problem. A parent who smoked once asked me, how do, you get, how do I get my son not to smoke? I said, you don't. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate. If you're able to stop smoking, that would be the best thing. Even then, you can't guarantee that your child won't smoke. But if you're smoking, <laughs> there's really not much you can say. You know? <laughs> to remind you, I was, many years ago, I was working in Israel, and I was working in one of these uh, residential settings. And we had a lot of madrichim who dealt with their kids. And we were having this big meeting. I walk in. And, and what, what, was on, what was on the agenda for the day? What to do about the kids smoking? These were junior high age kids, and there was a lot of smoking going on. So we were having this big meeting. What to, that was the only item on the agenda. What to do about the kids smoking? There must have been about 15 madrichim, and there was a principal, and, and myself, and the social worker, and, and, and I was the only guy in the room who wasn't smoking. Everybody's going, we got a, we got this tremendous problem. What are we going to do? All the kids are smoking. And I was the only one who thought it was very ironic, you know. I said, hey, gentlemen, you know, through the fog of smoke. <laughs> Those were in the days when you saw a lot of smoke in the buildings. I said, you know, does anybody notice anything funny going on around here? You know, they really, they're kind of clueless, you know. Now, you know, when we think about consequences or, or you know, how it bothers us when a child acts in a way that's self-destructive. You know, a child wakes up late, gets in trouble in school, so, so we get frustrated about it. Like, well, you know, what's the matter with the guy? Doesn't know what he's doing to himself? Are we that much different? How many people eat chomp on Shabbos too many portions even though they know the price they're going to pay? Right? You know? Are we so different? Are we always thinking about the consequences? We're human. And we sometimes do things that, that don't make so much sense. Right? So the children, I think just we need to be a little more sympathetic. Even if we want to do something about it, when you do it with sympathy and, and, and empathy and a little bit of understanding, they, they, they handle it much better. You know, I, I'll never forget this also. A few years ago, a guy comes to me, and he's had a problem with his teenage son. He walks in, he's at least 60, 70 pounds overweight, and he's reeking from smoke. Right? And he's telling me, what should I do with my kid? He has no self-discipline. What should I do? He gets up late. He can't keep a job. He gets thrown out of school. And, and he was saying it as if there's something incredibly horrible. And I'm trying to explain to, to explain to him, listen, your son's going through a hard time. Some things you told me, there's a lot of things on his mind. He's depressed. He's angry. He's frustrated. There's no such excuse. If you put your mind to something, you can do it. I said to him, listen, I hope you'll forgive me for saying this, but I'm trying to be open and honest with you. Do you need to tell me that you're happy that you're overweight and you smoke? He goes, no, oh, you're crazy. What do you know? You thought I was crazy. He says, well, you, you know how much money I spend? You know how many of these courses I took and I went to doctors and I paid so much money and I tried this and I tried that. You know how frustrated I am? I said, what do you mean? If you put your mind to it, you're about to do it. I said, you know, like you have a problem with this. He has a problem with getting up in the morning. You know, you got to work on what you have problems with and he needs to work on what he has problems. Just to be a little bit more empathic and not look at it as something horribly wrong with them. So now, it's, it's universally acknowledged in the whole world 
that the most effective way to influence children, whether as teachers or as parents, is by what they observe from their parents, what children observe by their parents, rather than what parents uh, preach to them. The idea of do as I say and not as I do has long ago been discredited. The Chazayish writes in one of his sorem, he writes that one of the most major problems in Chinuch is when the teachers themselves are lacking in Midos. Right? And, and of course, it said the children are going to learn more from what the teacher does than from what the teacher says. In Pasha Zayeva, there's a famous book from Amisha Feinstein, you know, it says that when, 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 the, when the guests came and, and, and Avram said, Yukach no ma'at mayim, water should be taken for the guests. He didn't bring it himself, he did it through a shaliach, he did it through one of somebody else. So it says, because of that, when the Rebbeim gave water to Klaisol in the Midbar, he didn't do it himself, he did it through a shaliach, it was through Maishu Rabbeinu. So as a midah connected midah. So Maishu asked, What's wrong with what he did? Maybe he wanted to educate his children. He wanted to teach his children how to have Achmas Hazarchim. So he told them to bring the water. What's wrong with that? So I'm sure I know. You know the best way to educate your children for Achmas Hazarchim? You go do it yourself. Or at least do it together with them. Like later on, he did it together with his son. Right? But you sit back and need you and say, oh, go, go take care of the guests. It's not the way to get children to appreciate the value of Achmas Hazarchim. You know, and sometimes these messages are very subtle. Uh, a, few, a few years ago, I was working with a kid who was about, he was in high school, I think he was in 11th grade at the time, a very sweet kid and a very, uh, you know, who wanted to do the right thing. He had, he had issues at home, and, and, uh, but whatever it is, he was really a kid who was trying to do what's right. So he came in one day to school, he came one day to a session very, very upset about something. He came in very, very perturbed. What happened? He was telling his students, the, the, the Rebbe overheard the boys talking about that they're organizing a baseball game for Friday. Right? So the Rebbe said, oh, you, oh, you guys are playing, yeah, we're having a game, we're playing another, against another yeshiva. So he says, do all the kids get an opportunity to play? Do all the kids in the class play? So the boy said, depends who we're playing. When we, you, most, of the, most Fridays we play against each other, then every kid plays. When we play against another yeshiva, the weaker players don't want to play because they want to beat the, they want to beat the other team. So then only the, the better players play. The Rebbe just went, went ballistic. He said, well, what kind of derecheritz is that, making other kids feel bad and then embarrassing the other kids? And, and, and the boy tried to explain that they don't want to play. They, even if we ask them to play, they don't want to play because they want, they want to beat the other team. No, there's no such thing. And he was like, really, totally, I'm, I'm going to ban this whole thing. I'm not going to let you guys play anymore. So the kid really felt he was a good boy, you know, and he came in, he said, are we really doing something so terrible? So I asked him, let me ask you, do they have in your class Mishnahis about pet charts on the wall? You know, like a competition, who can memorize more Mishnahis? Do you have a chart on the wall with each boy, how much he's done? So yeah, sure we have. I said, are there any boys in, in your class who have weak memories, and even though they try very hard, you know, they're really way behind everybody else. He says, yeah, there's two boys. The two boys are always trying, and they're just way behind. They just can't memorize very well, and, and they, they're way behind. Does it seem to bother your Rebbe that they're being totally embarrassed and humiliated? Anybody who walks in from the class or parents that come from PTA, does everybody see that they're way behind everybody else? So it doesn't seem to bother him. Why is that? You know, they're supposed to worry about why the other kids can't play baseball, but he can humiliate the kids in public. Right? I don't think he's thinking about that. He doesn't realize the example that he's setting. Now, what's very much overlooked, very frequently, you know, even when we're talking about a child setting an example, we don't think about the example that we are setting 
as we talk to the child. When we think about setting an example, we think about what we're doing in the outside world. If you want to teach your child about chesed, if you see that you are involved in chesed outside the house, that's how we look at it. If, if, if you want... But what about how we deal with a child himself or herself that we don't look at? I had a very dear friend of mine. I was once standing with him. We dabbed Marv in a small yeshiva. And I'm standing with him. And uh, some child, there was a bunch of chairs piled up against the wall. And uh, one of the boys, it was a new boy that just came to the yeshiva at the beginning, uh, in, in, in the, in the end of September. And, and the boy walked by the chair, by the chairs and knocked down the chair. And instead of picking it up, he just kept on walking. So my dear friend, who's a wonderful person, and there were guys in the, still in the, in the base madrid, he yells at the boy, Hey, you, you, come back here! You know, and, he, and the boy, like, he gets all embarrassed. He comes back, he says, and he says loudly, you know, you, you see what you did? You walk by, you knock over a chair, you don't pick it up? But very embarrassingly, the boy, you know, picked it up and put the chair back. So after he left, I, I told my friend, I said, listen, I hope you'll forgive me, but, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think you realize what you just did. You're trying to teach this boy me this by humiliating him in public. I, what, what, what are you thinking? He goes, oh, you think I embarrassed him? I go, you think you embarrassed him? <laughs> you yelled at him in front of him. And, and now he's a new bucker in the yeshiva. He must have been doubly humiliated because, he, you know, he just came here probably trying to establish a reputation. He just embarrassed him. And to his credit, because he's really a wonderful guy, he just wasn't thinking. And I said, oh, you think I should apologize to him? I, I, I said, I think you owe him an apology. So he went to the boy and apologized. But how can you teach Midas to somebody when in your act, you're, you're violating every rule of Midas? There's a particular yeshiva in Eretz that I've known about for many years, that what, they're, 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 what they fly on their flag, they're the point of pride as they teach the kids Midas. They have contests and stories and all kinds of things to teach Midas. They are so atrocious in how they treat their own to the students, it's, it's like mind-boggling. It's probably, there's probably more insults between teachers and students in this yeshiva than any other yeshiva in the world. It got so bad that they fired the principal who's related to the person who established the school. You know what that takes, you can just imagine. After many years of this horror going on, they finally got rid of him because they realized they were going to lose students. Right? And this is how they're teaching me this. It's ridiculous. You know? I once asked, I asked Rabbi Zilberstein, the Rabbi Yasha's son-in-law, I once I asked him, I may have mentioned this, I asked him, you know, there's halacha, that if you see a parent doing something, you violate the halacha, you, 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 you have to tell him in a respectful way. Maybe he doesn't know, or he forgot. So you have to point out to him in a respectful way that what he's doing is a violation of halacha. So I asked Rabbi Zilberstein, what happens if a parent is talking to the child in a way that's contrary to halacha? That in, in the hilchas chinuch, the, the parent embarrasses the child, when it's, which is usually not permitted up the halacha, right? And, and uh, uh, does a child have a chiv to point out to the parent that they're speaking to them, even if they're the victim? Does, 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 he said, absolutely. You have to point out you're violating the halacha. You're talking to me in a way that violates halacha. Right? Now, there's a very interesting tshuva. There's, there's a very interesting tshuva from, from Ramesha Feinstein that's mind-boggling. I think it very much highlights and illustrates this point. Somebody asked Ramesha, you know, very often in schools, I'm sure it happens in your children's schools, somebody does something wrong, somebody writes some nasty comment about the teacher on the blackboard, right? And the teacher walks in, of course they don't know who it is, nobody wants to say, what does the teacher does? The teacher says, if you don't tell me who did it, you lose recess for a month. Right? A very common occurrence. Is this permitted? Api halacha. Ramesha wrote, it's absolutely and totally forbidden. 
In fact, he even says it's so strange, it's a disgusting thing to do. Why? Because you're teaching the children to speak Russian Hara. So, some educators, a, a group of educators, and uh, one of the famous Talmud Torahs in Bnei Brak, wrote a lengthy letter to Ramesh to try to get a heter from him. And they explained, sometimes that's only waking Mechanach the kids, as the Rebbe doesn't know who, who did it, how you're, supposed to, how you're supposed to stop it, how you're supposed to build, you know, you have to talk to the kid who did it, to be Mechanach he said, Meshur wrote him back, this is printed in the Igris Meshur, Meshur says, there's no dice, you know, there is no heter, all your excuses don't count for anything, forcing a kid, now, if a child on his own is worried about his friend, he sees his friend is doing something wrong, and the child has moved on his own to appreciate that maybe this Rebbe can help him, maybe he can talk to him, and he comes on his own, that's a different story. But to threaten a child, or to the band of a child, to snitch on, his, on, on, on a friend, is, is, is a horrible thing, Right? That, that, that is totally unacceptable and, and, and it's, it's not in its author. Right? So, of course, the best way to teach children uh, positive character traits is to treat them with those very character traits that, that, that we're expecting them to develop. Now, this is much more than just saying please and thank you, although that is a good start. You know, I, I, there was once a, a, a Rav that came to our community from another town. He was going to be speaking at a local Malavamalka. So we went over to him Friday night. We asked him to learn what the Chumash was. So he started discussing the, the idea of, of, of Hakar Satayv. He had to show gratitude. So he said over a cute story that happened between... He, he was saying over a story that he went to... Uh, to um, that he was once carpooling his kids to Yeshiva. He was carpooling his, his son and his son's friends to Yeshiva. When they got to Yeshiva, all the other boys said thank you, and his son didn't say thank you. So this, this Rav says, he says... Now, why is it, you know, just because it's your say, why they take, it's not good that children take their, their parents for granted, that when, you know, the other kid, so he told his son, he told his son, how come all your friends say thank you and not you? <laughs> so he starts laughing, he says, when I go with their parents, I say thank you, and they don't say thank you, of course, whoever, if it's your father, you don't say thank you. So he was decrying this, like, you know, just because it's your father, you shouldn't say thank you? So I told him, I was feeling a little gutsy at the time, so I, I asked the Rav, I said, you know, I hope the Rav will be Michael me, but, you know, can I ask the Rav when he asks his son to take out the garbage, does he say please and thank you? So fortunately he had a sense of humor, and he said, oh, you psychologists are all the same. <laughs> However, I think, I think the point is well taken, because if he takes his son for granted, why shouldn't the son take his father for granted? He should set the, the, the example. So that's a good beginning, saying please and thank you. However, you know, it's, of course it's more than that, because character traits are more than just you know, saying please and thank you. It's being pleasant, thoughtful, sympathetic, and understanding. And all this does not preclude discipline, because even discipline and reprimands can be done in a sympathetic way. When, when you feel empathic, when you understand where the other person is coming from, when even if you reprimand them, you do it in a different way. It comes across in a very different way. Now, when you treat the child with proper midas, when a parent or a teacher treats a child with a proper midas, you have two benefits. First of all, you're setting an example, but also makes for, for, for a warm, loving relationship. The child feels differently towards somebody who treats them in this way. So it's more likely that the child will, will, will accept the, the teacher or the parent's teachings about Midot. Right? If the child feels warm and, and, and a warm, caring relationship with the parent, they're more, much more likely to accept the ethical teachings that the parents are trying to teach. And even more important, a happy, content child is much more likely on their own to act with proper midas. Rav Dasser says in the Mikhtar Milio that when there's a midas ha in the world, when, when there's the economy is going well, there's no wars, 
and the situation in the world is better. People treat each other nicer because they're happy and content. When there's, God forbid, wars or hunger, uh, you know, an economic depression, it's, it just happens. I think uh, the ADL always reports when the economy is doing bad, anti-Semitism increases. When people are frustrated, unhappy, they look who to beat up on or who to, you know, who to scapegoat. So same thing in a family. When the general atmosphere is positive and the children are happy and content, they just more naturally treat each other and there's usually less sibling rivalry and they just get, it's much easier to get them to act in a, in a, in a meet thicker way. Now, it would seem that the need to set an example in teaching a child me this would seem self-evident. Nothing that I'm saying sounds like rocket science Right? I mean, it, it's plain common sense should tell you that if you're yelling and screaming at a kid and you want to teach him how to speak gently and nicely, it just isn't going to happen. So it, it's kind of amazing to understand like why this is so difficult for many people to do. So, uh, you know, it, it might, I don't know if I mentioned here the joke from the Reader's Digest about painting the room. It wasn't a joke, actually. It was a, a true story. This lady writes that uh, they were painting their house and their five-year-old kid walked into the room and like I guess wasn't told before there was going to be painting you know so he comes in and sees you know everything all over the place paint and everything and she goes and says uh, you know what age is going on here so I was like shocked that this five year old was talking that way he gets all upset and he turns to his wife and says who in age taught her to speak this way <laughs> a real story you know <laughs> so um, so what's the reason why is this obvious truth so why does it elude us? It, it seems to be so obvious. Like, what, what's missing? So just briefly, we've spoken about some of these things. I think that in all areas of Chinuch, we focus more on instruction, which is the least effective but most obvious instrument that we have. Right? The most obvious way, even though it's the least effective, is to tell them, you must behave this way, you can't do that, you have to do this. And we ignore the relationship, which is the most powerful but least visible instrument of influence. Understand as we are, we can look at it two ways. One, it just stares us in the face. If the child is acting in a way that's inappropriate, so it stares us in the face. The most obvious thing to do is to tell them to cut it out. It happens to be the least effective way to deal with these things long term, but it works short term, and, 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 it, and, it, and it's most obvious. The relationship is, is a much more effective tool, but it's much less obvious, and it's more long term. Right? I, I, you know, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but there was a father once who told me, you know, I, you know, I should tell his son to learn every day. I said, why? I said, you've been telling him that for years and it hasn't been working. He said, why, you want, you know, why, why am I going to add to what you've told him? He said, no, but you he likes, you will listen to. So the reason why he likes me is because I don't tell him these things. Because I know it doesn't work. I don't want to do aggravate him. I ruin my relationship with him. You know, it could be wrong term. If he gets better through our relationship, could be he'll feel comfortable learning again. Because if I tell him I'll be doing the same thing the father did that didn't work. He says, no, you have all the psychological tricks. You know how to do it. You know, I can brainwash him or something. He doesn't understand the only tool I have is a relationship. If I can develop a relationship with a child where he feels comfortable with me and he feels I'm accepting of him, slowly but surely he'll become more open to different ideas and, and feel more comfortable acting in a way that's more appropriate. But we also look at chinuch in a very superficial manner. Did we get him or her to behave properly? That's, how we, that's human nature. Human nature is we look at things superficially. It takes an effort to try to overcome superficiality and think long-term. Uh, you know, many years ago when the Japanese economy was much better than the American economy, I don't know too much about these things, but I remember they always wrote in the papers that the reason why the Japanese companies do better because they look long-term. In American
American companies, you want your stockholders to be happy every three months, so you only can think about what's going to make you money three months. In Japan, they can lose money for five years if they get a larger market share. In the long run, the company will do very well. They don't mind. So, you know, that's, that's the way, uh, you know, if we think long-term, is what intervention will actually help long-term. And I think very often, as I also we've mentioned before, that we often do not think about the long-term about the, our impact on the children. We always constantly look from the child to us. What is he doing? What is she doing? How do we react? We don't think about what environment we're creating because, again, it's, it's, it's not something that obviously hits you in the head. The child's behavior is something you see right away. To think more deeply into it and think about what's going on that's creating it is not something that, that, uh, that we think about. You know, I, there was once a... Uh, uh, this is really amazing because it actually happened in a psychiatric hospital. I worked after I graduated for a year in a psychiatric in an acute uh, inpatient ward, a locked ward. So there were very disturbed people there. And um, there, was a, there was a fella, there was a day room where they all sat around and listened to music or watched television. And it was right outside the nurse's station. So everybody walked by there. So there was a, uh, this fella was sitting there playing one of the Beatles songs. And this guy's like, come, they're playing my song, they're playing my song, you know, as if he wrote the song. So this, a psychiatrist, I wish she was a Filipino, a very nice lady, but I think, I think she missed the boat about certain things. And she was walking through, and she hears him saying they're playing his song. She goes, no, John, that's not your song, that's the Beatles. He starts getting all agitated because he needed to believe it's his song. And he goes, no, they're playing my song. She goes, no, no, John, that's not your song, that's the Beatles song. Of course, he blew up, went totally out of control, and they had to lock him in the, in the isolation room. And later on, I'm looking in the, in, the, in the nurse's chart, and somebody charted, I don't know if it was a psychiatrist or a nurse, right? John became agitated and started acting out for no apparent reason. You know? So I told the director who I was friendly with, I said, this is called no apparent reason. I can tell you exactly what the reason. The psychiatrist, the psychiatrist insulted him for, for no apparent reason. You know, this is called for no apparent reason? Like everyone's oblivious to what they're doing that's creating the problem. And the, and the last reason I want to relate to is that one of the reasons why it's very hard for us to try to think of what we're doing, the impact of what we're doing on, on the children, on, on their development of their midas, is because, unfortunately, many parents don't think that all the rules of the other not hurting out somebody else's feelings, they think it doesn't apply to children. People think that, that the Chiv Kibar Azeim preempts every halacha of Ben Adam That's a very common belief. And this problem didn't start in our generation. There's a well-known sefer called Sefer Habris by the Pinchas of Vilna. He was a famous Rosen Vilna. I think he lived about a hundred years ago. So this is not a new problem. This is what he writes. I'll quote a paragraph from there. It's translated, free translation. There are parents who practice Avas Habrias, the love of fellow man, and are careful never to hurt the feeling of any person. When it comes to their own children, they express insult and abuse. They seem to question whether speaking in this manner to one's own, own offspring is so terribly wrong, or whether it's indeed a breach of Avas Habrias. They ask themselves, don't our children come from us? Are they aren't they bound by the Torah to fulfill Kibbut Avaim? Aren't parents granted exclusive permission from Hashem to educate and chastise their children accordingly so that they will follow the ways of Hashem? Their claim, however, is unreasonable and not according to the Torah. Why shouldn't one's children be included in the prohibition 
of hating your brother or the command to love your friend like yourself. In fact, just as the Torah gives priority to relatives and close ones when it comes to performing acts of chesed, so too are the consequences for inflicting pain on relatives far greater than for doing so to someone else. And I think, unfortunately, I guess our natural inclination is that we feel that the Kibbut Aveim, the obligation of honoring parents, like, exists independently of anything that we do to our children. So therefore, we don't connect the two things together. So with this, I just want to end with saying that I believe if we set an example of respectful behavior, especially in our behavior with our own family members, we will find that there's very little need for direct instruction, and our, strict, and our children will develop exemplary midas in due time. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, earlier in your uh, discussion, uh, mm. I think you mentioned something that there be no gadol in this matter. Yeah, who disagrees? That would uh, endorse you know, forcing mm-hmm. a child to do something. Yeah. How do we reconcile that with mm. Actually, it's in the, actually this past week's Aftaya, you have a good example. That right? Sort of criticizing Shlomo for not having said anything to his son. Right. So the, the, the shot is like this, that the way I understand, of course, you know, uh, we, you know it's, it's difficult for us to talk about something like Shlomo Melch and what he did, but obviously when Chazal tells us, uh, these lessons, it's for us to learn something from it. So, of course, it's not, you know, it's only what we can understand from what Chazal tells us, but I think that our understanding of it is that, that in that statement in, 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 in Navi, it's telling you what his motivation. The question is, why did Shlomo Melech not tell his son? That's the question, right? Now, it doesn't say that he didn't tell his son because he realized that if he told his son, it would make it worse. So he didn't want to get him aggravated. You understand? There's a difference what your motivation. Sometimes, it's just like between any relationship. If a person has an issue with his wife, right? a guy has an issue with his wife, has something upsetting. Now, it could be, it would be much better if they discussed it openly, even though it might be a little aggravating, they might have a disagreement, it might cause a little friction. But in the long run, that's what all marriage counselors tell you. You have to communicate. Sometimes when you communicate, it causes a little bit of friction. But in the long run, it's better. Right? So sometimes people... If you tell your child, you know, have a temper tantrum, or he'll be upset, it'll make things a little bit unpleasant for a while, you don't have to just ignore it. So that, that's, that's not good. That should never be a reason. If, if, if long run, it would make things better, even if for a while things might get worse. I tell all my patients when they come to therapy. I say, you'll probably get worse before you get better, because you're going to bring up issues that are painful, you're going to bring up issues that are hurtful, but in the long run, you'll be better, right? So it's a short-term loss for a long-term gain. So he was criticized only because it seems from what the public tells us that his motivation for not saying wasn't a long that because he realized it, it, you know it would be not it wouldn't be good, right? And so he didn't want he didn't want to make him upset, you know. My papa, you know, he's gonna be unhappy for a while. I don't want him. I don't want him to make him upset. That seems to be the shot. Well, so that's specific. Yeah. I'm not. So give me a, yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and the commentary is that there are consequences for that. 
yesterday that there are inherent consequences in the world that the child sooner or later learns. When, when, a, when a child sleeps late and gets thrown out of school or sleeps late and loses a job, is it, be, is it because they're unaware of the consequences? Is that the reason? Very often when parents point out the consequences to the child, it is so, the child knows it just as well as the parent. You're not informing them any new information. If a kid is like losing one job after another because they can't get up, and, and the parents say, you know, if you don't get up on time, you're going to lose a job. Oh, gee, I didn't know that. Wow, thanks for letting me know. That, that wasn't the problem. See, you have to, if a child does it, if a child eats... That's, that's, that's almost even if you told them before, you think the child never... But, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm saying if yeah. the parents aren't going to be the ones mm-hmm. bringing discipline to their children, right. how, will the, how can we expect the children then to interact successfully yeah. in the world at large when you have bosses and other people yeah. that, hey, you know, there are right. consequences right. to your actions. Exactly. So, they're not going to be friendly with you yeah. if you don't help the company yeah. make money. Well, yeah. okay, you're a nice guy to have around and nice personality. I like public, but you're not going to get a salary. I, I yeah. mean, so I, I, I'm still perplexed. Because, again... Yeah. And also another question, yeah. maybe if it's yeah. is that I just wonder if you give this type of yeah. uh, opportunity yeah. and discussion to the teachers because sure. uh, a, a lot of times teachers put kids' names on board sure. but it's not public embarrassment. Sure, sure. Or is it sometimes they punish the kids when their parents sure. who get their kids to school late sure. and they say, well, if the kids will right. the kids because we're going to hold them hostage to the parents. I mean, it seems like there's... Okay, so first of all, I'd like to connect your two questions because I think you've answered yourself. I, I, let, me, let me connect the two things that you said. First of all, the answer is I do speak to teachers very frequently, and I tell them exactly the same thing. I tell everybody the same thing. And principals, I've spoken there for principals too. But let me ask you a question like this. You, you just, I think if you think about the two things that you just said, why is it the teacher is also trying to enforce consequences? The teacher is doing the same thing. The teacher says, you come late. The teacher needs the kids to come on time. The teacher says, I, I, you come late? I'm not interested. Why? You come late, there's consequences. And you as a parent say, well, you're acting crazy. Well, the kid doesn't drive on his own. He's coming in a carpool. What do you mean? So you have to take circumstances into account. You can't just blindly say there's consequences. Right. Right? No. So I think, why the parent? Just like you're demanding that, you're expecting that from the teacher. Okay, so I'm not saying there should never be content. I'm just saying you have to know if it makes sense. And very often, especially when there are problems, usually when a kid doesn't have any problems, this whole process happens very smoothly. It usually doesn't come up as a major problem. The child learns from the parents through example, because if, if the father acts in a responsible way, if the mother acts, acts in a responsible way, and the kid feels connected to their parents, so the child usually will internalize this in a very smooth process that doesn't, doesn't create a lot of conflict and problems. Usually the problem comes up in its full glory when there's a problem. The child is not acting age-appropriate, right? So then all of a sudden we wake up, there's a problem. This child doesn't have any self-discipline. The child is acting inappropriately, right? That's usually when the problem comes up. Unfortunately, no? Child doesn't seem right or wrong. You say, well, he's ignores those wrongs, 
let's figure out what's the environmental impact and, and maybe there's something else. No, I mean, you're talking about if you've something wrong that's age that kids normally do. No, I'm saying if a little kid, if a kid drops a glass. So you're asking more questions based on your questions, and I'm trying to get an answer. <laughs> no, because you have to know the sicker. If a child who's three, the value of Priyad says over a story that when, when, when he was, when he was, I think, about six years old, or seven years old, I think it's written out, so he walked by, he walked by, uh, he walked by, his mother had, uh, no, he, he drank a cup of coffee, uh, whatever, and he left the cup on the edge of the table. His mother walked by and knocked over the glass and it broke. His mother criticized him for being careless where he put the cup. A few days later, his mother drove drank a cup of coffee and, and left that edge of the table and he knocked it over and his mother criticized him for being, not being careful how he's walking. Right? So he p- pointed out to his mother that this is a contradiction. I couldn't have been wrong both times. Right? So, or if a child gets, their children in, in the year 2004 get slapped, little children for knocking over a glass and spilling it on the floor. Right? So, is that really an appropriate reason to slap the kid? The parents will tell me that they do that. There has to be consequences. You're not careful, you knock over a glass, you have to get slapped. Right? I would say that's incredibly exaggerated because that's a normal behavior. The kid didn't, it wasn't like a 15-year-old, you know, in a fit of anger flung the glass across the room. This is a different type of behavior. You understand? Know yeah, I want to give other people yeah. a chance. I okay. Know how okay. Start, but, but it just seems that we accept normal behavior. Mm-hmm. And you've seen the headlines mm-hmm. that happens in normal behavior that uh, the, the child starts spending that sort of thing before you know it, you have it. Uh, right. Because most of these kids... No, no, no. Most of the kids, even in... Who are the kids in the secular... I want to tell you, in the secular world, when you find somebody who's acting totally inappropriately, a guy, when you read about a kid who went, you know, in the school and shot up, you know, shot ten kids, or kids who... What's usually the, the history of these kids? When you read later on, when they, when they, you know, find out who the kid is and they write about their life history, what, who are these kids usually? Most often. Yeah. You don't see that? I, I, I see they were uh, That's usually not, that's only part that we focus on. No, I, I've read many of the studies on it. I've read the follow-up studies. And, 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 and usually their kids were either abused, there's, there's a dysfunctional home. Yes, practically always. You find the case, uh, I'll find you five, for, for every one you'll find that, as far as we know, Yes. You know what Rehersh says about Asaph? How Asaph turned out the way, how he turned out the way he is? I'll tell you exactly what Rehersh says. Rehersh says that in the Chumash, you can look it up, Rehersh says, you know why Asaph was not born to be a Russian. In fact, Rehersh says in, in the Sefer that look, most people look at Asaph, people who bring Asaph as an example also think that Asaph was born to be a Russian. No, he wasn't. Okay, so that's what Rehersh was. You know why, according to Rehersh, the reason why Asaph turned out Asaph is because his father failed, of course you couldn't say it unless Rehersh said it, his father failed, and it's based on a Chazal, that, 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 that his father failed to be mechanechem al pidarkai. He tried to, he was successful with Yaakov educating the way Yaakov was educated, and he tried educating Esau in the same way, and it wasn't appropriate education. Esau had a different personality. Look at him first, she says, that is his explanation. I, I, I know that. Okay. Okay. I'm not saying you should make you unilaterally. I don't think you shouldn't ask advice and speak to Rav or somebody. Okay. Yes, any other? Well, I think you probably encapsulated the, what most people would say, because that's a difficult part, so <laughs> I think you're speaking for many people, because it, it is, uh, this is a, it, it's a more indirect way, I just think it's much more effective. 
You know, a, a, a few years ago, I got a call from a rabbi. He says, listen, you've you got to do me a favor. you got to meet this lady this evening. I said, oh, my schedule's full. I don't have... He says, no, you, this lady is here for one evening. She came for a chasana, and she's going back to Israel tomorrow. You've got to do me a favor. you got to see her. She's an almost. She lost her husband at a young age. She's raising seven children by herself. Wonderful lady. You've got to help her out. She says, okay, fine. I, I started the end of the day. What's her problem? When, when she lives in Israel, where things are even tighter than here. And her child was beginning to act out, you know, hanging around with not the best characters and you're not doing exactly what you're supposed to. And she describes to me how she's handling it. You know, she's giving him space. She, she even drives him to play basketball, which in some neighbors in Israel is probably, you know, almost like a Vaidazara, you know, and she's like trying to, she's really trying to, you know, to, to, to keep him happy and not to put too much pressure. So after she described to me what she's doing, I said to her, I'm not sure why you come to speak to me. It sounds like, you know, everything that I could possibly tell you. It sounds like you're handling it perfectly well. I don't really have much to add to what you're doing. So I know why you have to speak to me. So she says to me, you don't understand. I can't stand up to the pressure of my neighbors. I need chizuk. Oh my goodness, you go and play basketball. Oh, you crazy. He'll never get a shit. How can you do this? And he's hanging on these bad kids. you got to crack down. And, you know, I'm feeling maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. You know? So I said to her, let me ask you a question. Do you know these kids that your son is hanging out with, these shady characters he's hanging around with? I, she says, yeah, I try to get, I invite him in. I don't want him to hang out on the street. So I invite him in. I give him, you know, soda and potato chips. So I, I know most of them. And most of them are from the neighbors. I know them. I said, do you know any of them? That the reason why they're behaving this way is because their parents are too lenient with them. Do you know any of them? So she thinks of them and she's like laughing. She goes, no, no. Their parents are tough with them. They're cracking down on them. They're trying to, to enforce discipline. So that's your answer. This is the way it works. Yes. In each case is an individual situation. The people who have asked the Shaila, I'll tell you exactly a story with somebody that I know, uh, with Rapam, that there was a story that this, the kid had become rebellious, he started hanging around with the wrong crowd and, you know, went down that road. And uh, the parents were trying, they were in therapy and they were whatever, trying to, you know, fix things up. The kid bought himself a little television he put in his room. And this family was totally not acceptable to have a television. And the parents didn't know, they went to Rapam. They asked him, what should they do? And Rapam said, do nothing. Leave him. You're just going to aggravate him further. That is not the way to deal with it. Now, again, not every situation is the same. It would be impossible to answer that question without knowing all the circumstances. But there are many cases where people ask me. I had the same story with the Internet, that somebody came to me and asked, you know, uh, they claimed, you know, I, I said they should let the kid have the Internet, and they didn't want, and they said they spoke to him at the Seal Psalm, and he said not. I said, listen, if I, I, I will, I'm not near my das, whatever Matisseau says, you know, I will certainly accept. But in the meantime, I called after they left, I called Matisseau. Because it didn't sound to me believably that if he knew the whole story, of course, they only told him like a quarter of the story. Uh, I told him the whole story, and, and he said, no, of course. And you know, under these circumstances, they shouldn't fight with him over that. It depends on the circumstance. His usual rule is X. Under certain circumstances, you know, uh, one, of, one of the boys, uh, when we were talking, just one little, uh, said, you know, mentioned something that sometimes there's a contradiction between, between halacha and, and, and psychology, like how would I deal with it? I said, give me an example. He said, no, there are lots of contradictions. I said, tell me. He said, if the kid needed to go for treatment to a certain place and it's not a kosher place or they don't keep Shabbos, you know, so of course, according to psychology, you should go and according to halacha, you shouldn't go. He said, are you so sure? Did anybody ask a shayla? No, they didn't ask a shayla. I said, I don't care so they asked a shayla, they said to go. 
because his mental health required, you know, that he go, even though whatever whatever provisions they made for it. I personally, one of my patients went to a weekend retreat to a non-kosher, not Shomashada's place. He asked the big price and the big price said to go. I said, you're making an assumption that it's a contradiction to Allah, because very often, we don't know. You have to ask in each situation, you have to go to a rub, and you have to discuss. Very often, when people go to Rabbanim, they don't say the whole story, because they're embarrassed to give the whole background. Many of my patients, when I suggest something, say, well, my, my, my Rashiva told me the opposite. I said, oh, did you tell your Rashiva this detail and this detail? He told me, no, no, I was embarrassed to tell him that. I said, look, it's your choice if you want to tell him, but don't ask me questions from what he said if you didn't tell him the whole story. And sometimes with my encouragement, they open up a little bit and tell the Rebbe the whole story, and 99% of the time, he says the exact same thing that I said. So uh, the answer to your question would really very dependent. And there are many circumstances where, we, where, where, where uh, in fact, I'll tell you, uh, my, my grandfather was Rashiva and Tells in Cleveland, he was one of the first crusaders against television. This was in the 50s when television wasn't what it is today. And he would constantly talk about how it's like the Zara, and it's terrible, and so on and so forth. So, so one day, one of his students uh, came over to him and said that his wife is very sickly, and she's in bed, and she gets very depressed because she can't get out of bed, and, you know, what should he do? So he says to him, get her a television. This guy, like, almost passed out. He said, a television? But the Rashiva says it's an Avayda Zara. So, so he said, yeah, for everybody else it's an Avayda Zara, for you it's a mitzvah. Now, I don't know if he would have said it today, too, but I'm just saying, conceptually, so he said, in this situation, it's a, for you it's a mitzvah, for everybody else it's a like desire. It's not as blank, it's not all black and white. And the person has to ask Das Pirate in each particular situation and be very open about exactly what's going on. And then from there, you see. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, had a question? Yeah. Come on, last question. One, one, one question. Yeah. I think that you really wonderful helping us look at attitudes and Anything he's written is worth reading. He's incredible. Uh, there's tapes, a lot of stuff from, uh, from uh, what's his name, from Project Yes. Uh, his name, uh, Horowitz, uh, Yaki Horowitz, Rabbi Yaki Horowitz. He has a lot of stuff. It's great. But again, it doesn't mean I agree with every particular point, but it's irrelevant. If you do everything he says, you're in good shape. You know, he's like disagree on some points. He's great. He's very good. He has... And there's uh, Revolba's book that was translated into English, a little tiny book, a gold mine of, of, of wonderful advice. You know, it's hard to follow. See, it, it, the difficulty is it, it changing the way you look at things. You know, because like this, when you give up a, a, an unhealthy way of looking at things, and, 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 and the in-between stage is the worst, because then you're lost. I always explain to my patients why it's so hard for them to change their perspective. Now, if a guy's a perfectionist and he drives himself crazy and has to do everything perfectly, that's why his ego lives off being perfect or trying to be perfect. To give that up in order to be healthy, it's going to take him a while to be healthy. So in the meantime, he'll be neither healthy nor perfect. You know, it's really terrible. I feel bad for that. I always give an example of what happened in Russia after the fall of communism. Now, after the fall of communism, for, for a good many years, they were worse off than they were before. They said if they had a real free election... Two years after the fall of communism, the whole country would vote to go back to communism. At least they had something. 
They gave you free medical care. It wasn't much of medical care, but at least you had something. Nobody, nobody starved to death, and now people were starving, no medical care. The benefits always come later. So that's why it's difficult too. But those books all have, you know, tremendous uh, useful... Uh, the question about the issue that I think most contentious here, I think was well addressed in, in this, I think, two issues ago, the Jewish Observer had a, a wonderful... Uh, there was somebody who took the position that church only more disciplined were being way too nice to them and then from Rav Holowick there was a response to it and I think well brought out the two sides and of course I'm I vote for Rav Holowick but <laughs> I, I think you know it seems to me he demolished opposition but that may be my prejudice so that's, that's worth reading and actually I think in that issue or the issue before that I, there's a letter of mine about the internet you might find interesting uh, an issue but that, that article I think bring those Robert Olerich's article is great. He's written a lot of stuff. All right? Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very, very, very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah.